And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Red alert! All hands to battle stations! Engage! Captain Picard is a pain, isn't he? Interesting. No redeeming qualities. I think you should be destroyed. The great Captain Picard of Starfleet falls to Earth. Go back. Thou shalt most certainly die. Protect yourself, Captain, or they'll destroy you. We are dangerous. What can I offer except myself? Hello and welcome to Star Trek Monthly Monday number 62. This is the Next Generation Edition. My name is Scott Gardner and I am joined as always by my bestest buddy, Chris Honeywell. Hey! <laughs> How's it going, freak? Not bad. I heard you got some new Star Trekiness in I your life. did. And it was really funny because I'm often, if I'm up late night... I often do my famous eBay search, which is for Star Trek. <laughs> People who are too stupid to post stuff properly, hoping to get a bargain with something. Don't you that, love that? You know, they name it Star Trek and they have it end at like 3.30 in the morning. So <laughs> nobody bids on it. But I was also looking for a book that Scott Riefen had um, recommended to me, which I ordered. And then I started, and then I saw copies of the next generation compendium and i have the tos compendium and i was thinking you know i really need as a reference the 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 uh, next generation compendium and you always get stuck reading all the synopsis synopses yeah anyway so yeah but that's not so bad because i always end up doing the synopses <laughs> for the comics so <laughs> tell me which one you'd rather have so I was like, I, maybe I, I could find a cheap copy of this on eBay. And I was looking around, and I was finding them for like 5 $6. I'm like, that's not so bad. And then I, something inside me told me, a little voice inside me that sounded just like Jiminy Cricket, said, 
uh, just wait. You'll you'll find it cheaper at like a garage sale or something. And wouldn't you know it, like two or three days later, I was at a um, secondhand books bookstore, two dollars. So wow, I have a. You got to steal because that book is retails what like twenty bucks or better. Let's see what it says on here. What does it say? Yeah, fourteen dollars for whenever this came out. I'm assuming this yep. came out like around the turn of the century, right? Ninety-two. Yeah. Wow. So. Two bucks. Yeah. That's a steal. I tell you, one place that uh, that you can find a lot of cheap Trek books, people is haunt your Salvation Armies mm-hmm. and your Goodwill stores. You will find bring all this, kinds of... It wasn't actually yep. in a secondhand bookstore. It was in Savers, which is sort of a chain version of a, of a Salvation Army or something like that. Hmm. Which, and most of the stuff there was really expensive for what it was. You know, like most places like that, it's like 50 cents a paperback, a dollar hardcover. And here everything was starting at like two dollars you know mm-hmm. but when you find something like this okay two dollars no problem <laughs> <laughs> so you, you really had but people yeah there's a lot of times people will have a whole collection of star trek books and they'll end up in these you know they'll want to get rid of them maybe they just put them on their kindle or something and all of a sudden they're up there for the cheap and I've been noticing there's I don't know if it's something that's regional here or something but there's a, a, a bunch of used bookstores that are on a sort of uh, network of used bookstores so if you need like a certain Star Trek book in a series or something you can go there and they'll go through the network and have it sent to their store so that's always something to ask about but yeah, the used bookstores always have a really, usually have a really prolific Star Wars and Star Trek section in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in our local, uh, I'm not sure what that is. It's either Salvation Army or a Goodwill, I'm not sure, but it's not too far from us. I was in there a couple weeks ago, and they had a ton of Star Trek books in there, but I think I already had everything that, that they had, but... I mean, you can always find them, like, super cheap. They're usually, like, between 50 cents and a buck for, you know, anything from novels to, you know, some of this uh, research, you know, like the research-style books or what. Just, yeah. Because so many people in recent years have dumped their Star Trek collections at these places. It's kind of sad, but at the same rate, you know, if you're collecting yourself, then, yeah, it's a great way to pick them up on the cheap. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that means that uh, they're not worth a whole hell of a lot anymore. So no, well, that's the thing is, us. I'm not looking for them anyway for value. I'm looking. That's right. why I don't pick up a lot of the novels because I know I probably won't read them. And if it does get to a point where it's like, okay, I want to really read this series of novels, I know I'll be able to find them pretty easily. You know, mm-hmm. but when I see something like the making of Trouble with Tribbles, I'll scuffle it up because I'll get right to that. And I like, and I like, and it's easier to deal with the ones that are just reference ones because there's a lot less of them than the novels. The novels are just, it's like Doctor Who novels. It's there's just so many of them. 
so many devils. But that's basically all I've got for TNG. It's it's a rare month when I do have something. Well, I uh, a lot of what I got that was TNG related. Uh, if you listen to our TOS episode for this month, I, I talk about it over there. I got a giant stack of comics from. Uh, our buddy Dr. Bill Robinson, but you can hear me talk about all of that on uh, TOS, so go listen to that if you're curious what comics I got. We do have feedback, which is awesome, and right off the bat, looking at the dates on some of these, uh, this actually solves a bit of a mystery, because the first two I'm going to read here are from our buddy Mike Lacroix, and Mike is the host of the Canadian Military History Podcast. And not only have I gotten emails from him in the past saying, dude, I wrote into the show and I never heard my emails read on the air, but I actually had the pleasure of meeting Mike in person. Um, This was about a month or so ago, maybe six weeks ago, something like that. Uh, Mike was actually here vacationing uh, at Walt Disney. Well, actually, he was was vacationing in Orlando. I don't think he actually went to Disney at all, but we met up at, uh, at downtown Disney. Uh, at Walt Disney World and uh, had dinner together and just had a, a great uh, great time hanging out and just having a little conversation. I recorded it. Um, I have not uh, had any time yet to actually do anything with what we recorded to see if it's uh, something we could spin into an episode or what. But uh, it was just really nice to meet the guy and, and hang out with him. Mike, uh, honestly, he's one of the nicest people I've ever met. Just He was really friendly and just uh, huh. and he's very easy Canada? to know. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, imagine that. Huh? <laughs> but no, I mean, Mike, Mike was really a great guy. I don't, but well, uh, I, I, was... I hate to to you know further stereotypes of uh, culture, but if it's going to be something for Canadians, it's a, Canadians are just nice people, man. They are, they are, and he he was he was he was super nice. Um, but I feel bad looking at the dates here. I mean, one of these dates back to uh, November of last year. The other one's from January. Holy cow. So these were, somehow these got lost in the wash. And uh, and as I was saying uh, in the TOS episode, I recently went in and, uh, and refiltered a bunch of junk out of our inbox and found some, uh, some emails that had gotten uh, just kind of lost in the shuffle. Lost so in a these, sea of spam. There you go. Yeah, exactly. So these were a couple that turned up, and uh, you know, as I said, if you guys write in, I want to make sure that we cover this stuff. So, Mike, I sincerely apologize for the lateness of our getting to these, but uh, I wanted to make sure that we did address them. So the first one here is simply entitled Star Trek Monthly Monday, uh, Episode 49 Answers. So this tells you how long ago this was. Uh, he says, Scott, he says, during the Star Trek The Next Generation comic review in Episode 49... Uh, I'm almost caught up, he says. You said you were surprised when a character that had previously met Captain Picard on the Stargazer remarked that uh, he was now a captain. I think I have an answer to that. Picard was a lieutenant on the Stargazer. When the incident occurred that made him take command, he was still a lieutenant. Then instead of replacing him, Starfleet made him captain of the vessel. Uh, Substantively, he could have still held the rank of lieutenant but been appointed as captain of that ship. This is a common. Uh, this is common even today of small, uh, smaller vessels in the navy, which are captained by lieutenants, uh, lieutenant commanders, or commanders. And the actual rank of captain is held for commanders of larger ships. That's an interesting idea. I hadn't really thought about that, but he's right. So, so that character could have met. Uh, 
Jean-Luc Picard before he took command of the Stargazer and was just a member of the bridge crew or as the appointed captain of the starship but holding the substantive rank of lieutenant or lieutenant commander. Uh, I use the abbreviated ranks uh, since I know you were in the U.S. military in the past. And he had one other uh, email just entitled, My Son. He says, Scott and Chris, my son, Aiden, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's A-I-D-A-N. That's Aiden, right? says, my son, Aiden, and I just finished listening to Star Trek Monthly Monday TNG edition, The Price. Uh, as the intro was rolling, I asked him if he liked Wesley Crusher. He said, yeah, he's one of the good ones. I think that might be influenced <laughs> by the fact that Will Wheaton is pretty funny on the Big Bang th- uh, Theory, though. So take it easy. <laughs> he says, I asked him who his favorite character is, and he said, Jordy LaForge. I asked him why, and his answer was, because he's the chief engineer. He's the chief engineer, and he's the chief engineer. <laughs> I reminded him that he started out as the helmsman, and one of the publicity tags before TNG first aired was that they had a blind man as the pilot of the new Enterprise, which, yeah, that pretty quickly went away after the first season. Uh, he quickly confirmed that Reg Barkley, my son prefers Broccoli, was indeed instrumental in getting Voyager back from the Delta Quadrant. From your synopsis, he did remember that the Ferengis got trapped in the Delta Quadrant and showed up on Voyager. He wasn't paying attention uh, when that exact thing was said during the letter portion. He did enjoy the episode, and I think he got a uh, kick that you guys were talking about something that he remembers. I think you have a new fan. And again, both those letters are from Mike Lacroix, the host of the Canadian Military History Podcast. Go check it out. It's a really, really good show. And we actually have a couple more letters. Again, both by the same person. These are both by our friend Luke Giaconetti. Hey. And what's that? Hey. (laughs) And the first one is entitled Impromptu Guest Star Month and Video on StarTrek.com. He says, my fellow freaks... First off, let me say that I'm uh, really en- I really enjoyed the impromptu guest star month on Star Trek Monthly Monday. While Scott's presence was missed, having Hero talk about the apple was a riot. Yes, it was. I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, and I think I did when I in the first episode where I came back, but uh, I did get a real kick out of that. And he says, and Beta Scott talking about the animalized factor, or I mean the vengeance factor, was a hoot. Yes, it was. Says, I especially liked Heroes. Uh, all my notes are stuff with exclamation points and Beta Scott's tales of personal misery as a young man. There was an awful lot of 80s metal in these two episodes as well, which was an odd but, un- uh, but not unwelcome coincidence. I'm not sure that I've ever seen the vengeance factor, but I do remember the evil computer thing from the Apple from when I was a kid. So I must have seen this one back in the day, uh, days on WPIX channel 11 that's how that's what we used to watch uh my well, we watched ckws we can watch 11. ckws channel 11 but i remember we also got wpix w- channel WPIX 11 but i don't remember star trek ever being on there though we always watched it through ckws but anyway this is my local metv affiliate shows uh the enhanced version tos on saturday nights at nine so hopefully this one will be on in the near future so i can catch it again as an aside, Saturday night is super fun on this channel. Batman 66 at 7 o'clock, Wonder Woman at 8, Star Trek at 9, the 
Svenguli show? What the hell is that? Svenguli was a horror movie host. Oh, yeah. It says Sven, Sven being a horror movie host is out of show. Okay. Well, yeah, he answered the question if I kept reading it. Uh, the lost, uh, then Lost in Space at 12, followed by Get Smart. I want, what the hell is this? Me TV. I've never heard of that, but damn, that's some good shows. It's Wonder a lineup what? from, it yeah, sounds like the baby. daytime lineup of like WPIX when we were kids. Not exactly, but it was like yeah. that classic. Yeah. That time, you know, of that, those three decades. Man, swap out either Batman or Lost in Space mm-hmm. with uh, Six Million Dollar Man and the Hulk, and I'm there, man. That'd be awesome. That was like when uh, when Sci-Fi Channel was actually good at one time. They used to run a lineup very similar to that before they started showing uh, Sharktopus and all that bullshit that they show now. Anyway, uh, he says, man, perfect programming for a nerd not going out on Saturday night. <laughs> Uh, it's been a long time since I have been on Star Trek Monthly Monday. Way back in the Star Trek The Motion Picture episode in my podcasting debut, unless you count the occasional guest book uh, review. Is he serious? Is that how long it's been? Yeah. We need to have Luke back on the show, dude. It's been way too long. So so hopefully we can uh, work out a spot in the future. Definitely, definitely. You need to keep honest about shit like this, I swear. we just I, I'm just forgetful. And Chris, he's just he's just too stoned to remember half the time. What? <laughs> Failing that, I should have some book reviews coming up, as I have been mostly tearing through uh, early Voyager novels because you know me, I'm that uh, the weirdo who liked Voyager pretty much the whole way through. I liked Voyager from about the third or f- from Scorpion, whatever the hell episode Scorpion was, whatever season that was. I liked Voyager from Scorpion forward. Uh, on a side note. On the TOS episode, the nature of the full episodes on Star Trek of Star Trek on uh, let me read that again. On a side note, on the TOS episode, the nature of the full episodes of Star Trek on the StarTrek.com website came up. Uh, specifically, the user unfriendly navigation experience. I have found a way to make the site much easier to use. On the videos page near the top, there is a drop-down menu labeled Channels. On this menu, there is TOS, TNG, Voyager, etc. Once you choose the channel, it lists the shows uh, in the much nicer episode number order. You can then click on the View All link, and it will show you all the episodes for that show in uh, episode number order. Much, much easier than have to do a Control F and searching for the title. Oddly, while the vast majority of the episodes are available for each show, For some reason, there's several not available for each. TOS seems to be the worst in this respect, as there are a total of 61 videos available versus the uh, 79 episodes. For reference, TNG had 176 videos versus uh, 178 episodes, so pretty much full coverage. I discovered this fact while trying to watch a very early favorite of mine from Voyager, Phage. The one where the plague-ridden aliens, the Vidians, steal Neelix's lungs right out of his chest. And, and yes, why the hell did they go and chase down the Vidians? That, that, they did them a favor by doing that, but anyway. Uh, only to find that it was one of three episodes missing. 99% of the episodes on the website, and the one I want isn't there. Ain't it typical? Keep on boldly going and all that. And again, that's from Luke Giaconetti. And we have one other from Luke here. 
You're going to love the title on this one, Chris. This one is entitled Space Blow, an iconic character slash actor combo. Star Trek Monthly Monday, <laughs> Monday number 61. This is intriguing. <laughs> Space Blow. So Scott and Chris, I was driving back from Alabama on business last week and finally got a chance to listen to Star Trek Monthly Monday number 61 and wanted to provide a few comments. First off, you guys pondered what would happen if you tried to use the replicator to replicate some space blow? <laughs> oh, that might have been me, yeah. <laughs> I think we all know that the replicator would respond with something like, there are 679 varieties of space blow available. Romulan White, Bullion Style, Sleepy Time, Rimshaw, and Dorian Brain Scrambler. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Secondly, Greg Kirkman uh, made a point in an email regarding the TOS cast being so tied to their original performers that it was not really feasible to recast them. He specifically made the point that the Star Trek characters were not like James Bond or Batman in this way. Greg has touched on a topic which uh, I have seen discussed previously, usually using the term iconic to describe the character uh, slash actor combination. In this case, I think that the Star Trek characters being introduced to the world as characters portrayed by actors is what separates them from characters who debuted in printed form, uh, be it prose or illustrated. Wait, you know, I, I'm going to stop right here just to say that this actually occurred to me the other day. Uh, you know, just one of those things that popped in my head out of the blue. Right, James Bond came, was a book first. Yeah, I, I came to the same conclusion myself because I, I think what it was is I was trying to think why do I feel that way with some characters like say Star Trek and I don't feel that way with other characters like say I don't know uh, Superman or James Bond or Batman or something the Lone Ranger and it's because exactly what Luke's saying here if the character existed first then you kind of have you're already used to you already have your mental image and then actor X steps into that role but with something like, say, Star Trek, you know, the first time Kirk walked out, or you know, Shatner walked out, there's Kirk right there. So instantly, that that is now that person. You know, that Kirk didn't exist in a book or a comic or, or something beforehand. He existed, you know, whole cloth the first time we saw him in a, in a Star Trek episode. And I think that's the difference. And when the portrayal after a time reaches that you know again quote unquote iconic level then yeah recasting becomes a very dubious proposition and you know for some people you know it worked because you know you don't seem terribly phased by the recasting with new trek whereas other people it's just it can be a deal breaker and it, it is for me because while most of the recastings in new trek I looked at it and thought, eh, you know, okay, whatever. The the one that was the deal breaker was Kirk, and not not because uh, what's the new actor's name? Pine, Chris Pine. Not because he failed in any way. It's because I think Chris Pine is in a no-win situation. Whereas if he does his own thing and does his interpretation of Kirk. Then he's accused of not nailing the character. If he nails the character and does Shatner as Kirk, then he gets criticized for doing Shatner's Kirk and not doing his own interpretation. So he's in a complete no-win situation. 
And in situations like that, I, I question whether you should even try. You know what I mean? So that that was the point I was trying to make before, and I'm not sure if I really made you know was successful in trying to make that point. Anyway, back into uh, Luke's email here. He says when Ian Fleming wrote Casino Royale, James Bond uh, looked, uh, however, our mind's eye wanted him to look based on Fleming's description. We didn't have Connery or Moore, whomever operating as a model for the character with the Trek characters of course from the moment we first met them they were played by their actors I think I just said this and defined in this way for decades even when they appeared in other media they were linked uh, to look like their actors think the covers of the novels or the cartoon with little wiggle room I find this to be true of most iconic television shows with ensemble casts. consider Gilligan's Island the Beverly Hillbillies the A-Team and so forth when we get new live versions of these properties, they do not feel right because of the encoding of the actor to the character in our mind. Gilligan is Bob Denver, Judd Clampett is Buddy Epson, and so forth. The other side of the coin is the concept that the TOS characters, especially Kirk and Spock, have transcended their origins and now belong to the pop popular culture at large, similar to characters such as Sherlock Holmes, Dracula, Tarzan, the aforementioned James Bond, and so forth. So you can have different actors playing these characters because they are so well known uh, that they have joined the rarefied elite of fictional characters. And while a lot of people may uh, have met them while being played by a well-known performer, at the end of the day, the characters exist as characters above and beyond any one right. actor's portrayal. An interesting example is the Adams Family. While many were introduced to them through the TV show, Charles Adams' comic defined them as characters, hence why the two live-action films work so well despite the new cast, or their appearance in animated form, uh, Hanna-Barbera, which used Adams' designs, not the characters' likenesses. This is similar to the 1966 Batman series in this way. Not saying either one of these is right in the instance of Star Trek, it's a tough call. I tend to think that Kirk and Spock are at-large characters because of how much time and attention have been paid to them over the years in spin-off media and related work. But whenever they are recast, either in fan work or officially, I end up comparing them to the original performer anyway. A good example is Simon Pegg as Mr. Scott. Taken on its own, I enjoyed his performance in the first Abrams movie as an eccentric Scott engineer. Uh, but at the same time, my mind tells me that's not Scotty. By the same token, Carl Urban's portrayal of Dr. McCoy in that film worked because he seems to be channeling the same sort of motivations and nuances as DeForest Kelly. I can, I can picture a much younger Kelly reading the lines uh, in much the same way as Urban does. The second Abrams film was an unmitigated disaster as far as I'm concerned, and I make no statements regarding the quality of any performances in that film. Just some food for thought. I hope the comics get better soon. I got a copy of that Star Trek uh, comics DVD from my pal Adam, so I will try to read along. Now I'm off to go watch the Savage Curtain and get ready for the next episode. Thanks. And again, both those letters are from Luke Giaconetti, the host of the Earth Destruction Directive. If you're not listening to it, you need to be, especially with the new Godzilla. Oh, yeah. Because I'm sure he's got opinions on we're that. We're gearing into the, yeah, into the, yeah, Godzilla time. I cannot wait for that movie. I hope I'm not getting myself too psyched up, but it looks, I'm really excited for that. 
on that subject, um, we can go possibly tease this for Luke if he if he hasn't heard. Have we decided what we're doing for commentary monthly Monday? Are we doing the film? I think we're doing. Mm-hmm. All right, Luke. Here you go, buddy. Two words: Godzilla ninety-eight. Two more words: Matthew Broderick. <laughs> <laughs> so Luke is either going, oh yes, or oh no, one of the two. I'm not sure which. I'm not sure what his opinion on, is on that. I tend to think he probably is not keen on it, like most everybody else in the known universe. But you never know. He, he might actually, he might dig it. One way or the other, it should be fun. But that's all I got as far as uh, oh, this is weird. Email on that hmm? email from Luke. There's this attachment. Uh-huh. I just opened it up and it turned on the Star Trek computer. And now... Things are, hang on a second. Things are getting weird. Calling Star Trek Monthly Monday. Come in Star Trek Monthly Monday. Do you read? This is Associate Freak Luke Giaconetti contacting you from the Delta Quadrant. Hey everybody, Luke Giaconetti here. You might know me from such podcasts as The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror or Earth Destruction Directive right here on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. But you might not know that I'm also a big Star Trek fan. I've only been on Star Trek Monthly Monday one time. Well, technically two times. I was on the Star Trek The Motion Picture episode in my podcast debut, and I believe I've done a guest book review previously for a uh, Star Trek The Original Series book. Now, I'm a weirdo in that I liked Star Trek Voyager right from the start. And going back lately, I've decided, you know what, I'm going to try and read all these Star Trek Voyager books. They're pretty easy to come by. I've got a lot of great used bookstores here in the upstate of South Carolina that have tons and tons of Star Trek books. I figured, you know what, what the heck. And uh, so I'm going to start right at the beginning. Uh, Here's uh, my take on... Caretaker by L.A. Graff. And L.A. Graff is a pseudonym which stands for Let's All Get Rich and Famous for the authors Julia Eklar and Karen Rose Curson, who have written several Star Trek novels together under this alias across various different uh, series. Now, this is Pocket Books Voyager uh, number one. Other episode adaptions in this series, which included Flashback, Day of Honor, Equinox, and Endgame, were not numbered. This is very typical of how Pocket handled uh, numbered books in their Star Trek series, and it makes sense. Uh, But in this case, the pilot is numbered just because it's so crucially tied to the entire series setup. This is a little bit different than Next Generation or Deep Space Nine, where the pilot is not super, super crucial, where it does introduce the characters, but in Voyager, you need the pilot to explain the entire uh, setting. So, The plot is the same as the episode. While investigating a Maquis ship, which has disappeared into the rough patch of space known as the Badlands, the Federation ship Voyager, captained by Catherine Captain Janeway, is transported to the Delta Quadrant, 75,000 light years away, by the mysterious being called the Caretaker. The crew then comes into conflict with the savage Kazon and encounters the benevolent and docile Okampa while trying to figure out how to get home. I enjoyed this book. It offers a lot of insight into the characters. We really get into the heads of a few of them. Captain Janeway, of course, she being the main character of the series, that makes sense. But also Tom Paris, uh, Tuvok, and Harry Kim get a good uh, amount of exposition and character development. The Doctor also gets a few really good standout scenes. He doesn't have a whole lot to do in this, but we get introduced to him. And there's a couple of scenes narrated from his point of view, which are very interesting as he goes through his decision tracks, since he is a program, to uh, how he's going to respond to situations. Uh, 
There's some interesting beats with secondary characters. Of course, this being the first uh, installment of Voyager, there were several characters that were introduced kind of in a, in a swerve that you know were introduced to a character who we assume is going to be our navigator, a character we assume is going to be our second-in-command, and they all end up dying. So with th- some of those characters do get some nice little uh, second uh, little beats as well, so a little insight into their characters for as short as we get to know them. Uh, Captain Janeway herself comes off really well in this novel. She's depicted as being professional, foremost, yeah, foremost, and expects everyone else around her to be professional as well. And a nice thing, she doesn't tolerate people who think the rules don't apply to them. And this comes up a lot with her dealings with Tom Paris as well as with, as well as with Neelix in the second half. But at the same time, Eklar and Curson do a good job of demonstrating that she recognizes that the situation is a strange one and requires, you know, awareness and flexibility. I also really like that here in the TNG era of Trek, her gender is a complete non-issue. It comes up in her personal aspects. You know, she talks about uh, her uh, her boyfriend that she leaves behind and all that, but her being a female captain is a non-issue, which I always liked about Voyager. Tom Paris, he is one of the major point of view characters in this story, and it served really well by having his inner narration to add to the action. You know, Paris is a, was a compelling character. He was a guy who was in prison and is bailed out of this just because he knows the Badlands and he's a good navigator and pilot. So that he gets thrown into this, it's a chance at redemption for him. So a lot of his inner monologue is very much... Well, it doesn't matter what you do because you still got those people killed. And, you know, it's a lot of self-doubt as we see him, you know, kind of rise to the occasion in this, uh, you know, bizarre situation that the crew finds himself in. I, I, you know, a lot of times remember, he's a lot of times remember as just a snarky guy. But like I said, his redemptive arc in this story is really nice. And I'm hoping to see more of this redemptive arc as the series progresses. Harry Kim's naivete is put to good use as he's put into a, you know, a real strange situation when he's uh, with Torres in the Ocampa hospital. And it works because the reader's in the same scenario. We're not sure what's going on either, so having the guy who's the naive one makes sense. Uh, Tuvok gets to be the cool one, as usual, but uh, again, as would become common for the series, he is paired up with Neelix for much good comic effect. Tuvok is cool, I don't care, you know, there's some people out there that don't like Tuvok, they think he's boring. I think Tuvok is really interesting, because he reminds me kind of like the Martian Manhunter. He's really stoic, and really serious, but every now and again he gets a little bit of wry comedy in there, just on the, you know, under the surface. I like Tuvok, and I like Neelix too, so pairing them up together is always fun. Neelix doesn't have a whole lot to do, but he, him and Cass are only introduced in the second half, and uh, I'm sure we'll get more of them as the series progresses. Uh, Torres gets some to do with Harry. We get a lot of uh, Harry Kim's responses to Torres. You know, it's typical early Delana Torres. She's angry a lot. She's always so angry. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens with her. Tor- Torres was, she's kind of a take-or-leave-her sort of character at this stage. Later on in the series, in the TV series, she would grow quite a bit, but uh, it's interesting to see how they're portraying her here. Now, the weird thing to me was I remember Chakotay having a much bigger role to play in this story than he does in this book. So my question is, it's been many years since I've rewatched Caretaker. Am I remembering wrong? Did I give Chakotay a bigger role in my mind because he ends up playing the, the second-in-command and ends up being you know, a, a major cast member? Or does he really not have that much to do and I'm just remembering it wrong? Uh, it's, it'll be interesting to see. I, 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 Caretaker is available. Most of Star Trek Voyager is available on StarTrek.com to watch, so I may rewatch it and get an idea of you know just how much Chakotay had to do. 
In closing, I thought this was a very good read. I would heartily recommend this to any fan who likes this, the TNG era of Star Trek. Even if you never warmed the Voyager, which a lot of people didn't, I'd recommend this book because you'd probably like it. I think it fleshes out a lot of the characters. It does a good job with the adaption of the teleplay, but also adds quite a bit to it. makes it a really satisfying read. It's not super long, but it's not one you can flip through and be done with in a, you know, in a couple hours car ride either. So I really liked it, and I'm looking forward to reading more. The next one is called The Escape uh, by Dean Wesley Smith and Kristen Catherine Rush. And I'll be looking forward to that one. This is all new territory for me because I've never read any of these novels. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. I hope you guys enjoyed this little uh, peek into the Delta Quadrant, and I hope you'll come back for more. So next time I'm able to get to a broadcast beacon, I'll send you guys another message. Take it easy. Bye. I don't know. It's it seems to be working again. Yeah, just keep recording. We might as well keep going. <laughs> All right. Um. Yeah, I don't know what we had a little technical glitch there. So, um. This we're. I am. I'm. I'm feeling overworked. I am going to cover the synopses this month. But before we get started, I just want to note that it's a. Well, I hesitate to call it a bonus month of Star Trek The Next Generation because we're kind of catching up. Right. But, but but it's a bonus-sized episode. It's a jumbo-sized episode. How about that? Because we're going to be doing two episodes of Jumping Star Trek back. The Next Generation. <laughs> and um, so um, let me look at my notes because it doesn't say it. I think the first one we're starting out is, yes, Season 3, Episode 2. Ten. The Defector. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. Please, you must help me. An archenemy defects to the Enterprise. Got a traitor. I came to stop a war. But can he save them from a death trap? You're a spy, aren't you? Or will he lure them into a full-scale massacre? Shall we die together? Find out on Star Trek The Next Generation. And uh, this aired the week of January 1st, 1990. Um, directed by Robert Shearer and written by Ronald D. Moore. And I was accused of being a defector once. I didn't know what they were talking about. My brain's defector. <laughs> so. While fleeing his own people across the neutral zone in a small scout, a low-level Romulan tactical clerk asks for asylum, bringing with him shocking news. The Romulans plan to retake that buffer area after almost 200 years. Can Picard trust the defector? A probe finds some cloak-like spatial disturbances at the Nelvana 3 site mentioned by Satal, the defector. But this evidence is of this evidence of his good faith is fragile at best. Certainly not reason enough to justify crossing the neutral zone and risking war. Then the lowly clerk reveals himself as the Romulan Admiral Jerok, 
and provides Picard with defense and planning data he has seen. His defection, he says, was prompted by the blind aggression of the new Romulan command and by concern for his daughter's future if a senseless war breaks out. But the truth is revealed when the Enterprise risks a neutral zone encounter. No invasion is planned. The signs of activity were fate. Three warbirds decloak and demand that the Enterprise surrender. Jarok, already in disfavor for his protest, has been used. All seems lost. On a prearranged signal, three Klingon ships appear. With the odds reversed, the warbirds leave. But the Romulan Admiral knows what his fate will be. He is found in his cabin, dead by suicide, leaving only a letter that Picard wistfully hopes can be delivered to his home someday. In peace. What's the postage on that going to be? I know. <laughs> I like this episode. I like this episode a lot. This, uh, this is one of those episodes that makes me wish that TNG was scored more similarly to the original series because the way this one ends, I really think that it could benefit from some of the old, like, type of ending music that the original series had because it, this is sad. And I don't remember TNG having a lot of really like sad endings to it, but this one is a sad ending because uh, I think it's a testament to the actor. And I, I, I can't remember the actor's name that plays uh, Jarek in this, but he's really likable. I, yeah. I like this guy. I come to, you know, to, to care about him as a character. Toward the end, I was then... like, are we going to get a Jarek the pussified Romulan? He's like, <laughs> oh, no, guess not. No. You know, when he ends up doing what he does at the end of the episode, I, I, I feel badly for the guy, you know, he because there's a great line in this. You know, the, the last line he, he has is when he just says, you know, I, I did it for nothing. Yeah. And you realize that he threw away everything. He thought he was, you know, assuring or, or at least trying to assure that his little girl would would grow up and have a life and everything. So he was willing to sacrifice everything for that. But ultimately, that was he, what the, 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 the Romulans were going to see if he was going to go weak and do the right thing. And what yeah. he did, it was just a test. Sad. It is. It's, it's a good twist type of... It's almost a, a, a Twilight Zone style ending in a lot of ways. But it, it is. It's really sad. I, I, I like this episode a lot, though. This has always been one of my favorites. Yeah, um, you see Troy actually doing her job in it. <laughs> right. Well, if there's one common theme that we have with uh, with the episodes this time around is that Troy actually gets some useful things to do in both of the episodes that we're going to talk about. Yeah, what's about, up which with is that? <laughs> refreshing. Someone there's a, one other common thing that, uh, that makes these episodes both really awesome, too, is that there's no Wesley Crusher in either one of them. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Not even a cameo. I love it, or at least I don't think so. Anyway, <laughs> I don't think there's one of Wesley in this one. I, I don't. I know he doesn't have any uh, anything important to do in it. But um, what do you got for notes on this one? Um, why aren't there ever fish in that goddamn fish tank in the ready? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Maybe they keep dying or something. They're probably in there. They're just floating at the top. It's the most boring decorative fish tank ever. <laughs> I have. He is. You know what? He I has have, a I fish have, in there because I I can remember when 
this is a really here's a, a weird thing. One of the things that helped get me into TNG was when I was working at you remember the Salmon Run Mall, right? In Watertown. Yeah. So I was working at the Salmon Run Mall. This was after I got out of the service. And I was working at the mall and I, I typically would work nights, so I would get home late at night and I would get home just in time for Star Trek to be on. But Star Trek for some reason was on after next gen so typically i would sit through next gen in order to watch a classic episode of star trek and just through that process of sitting through next gen i started to kind of get hooked on it and this was at a time when you know i, I had a long-standing prejudice against the show it just well it wasn't kirk so i didn't give a shit about it but i started watching it and then i was working at the mall and you remember in the 90s when trading cards had kind of a resurgence there for a while so I started collecting trading cards again from, there was a, a little newsstand booth at the mall near the food court where I would go and eat every day. And I started collecting, they had um, X-Men cards. I think they were all Jim Lee X-Men cards. I was collecting X-Men cards. And then they came out with that first really nice set of Star Trek The Next Generation cards. And they were not the tops ones. This was a different company, but they were blue border. They were really nice, high definition pictures and everything. Really nice cards. And I remember one of the first ones I got was um, a card about Picard's goddamn fish. That's what made me think about this is when you said about the fish. And so he, according to that card, he did actually have a fish in that tank. And I want to say the fish's name was like Livingston or something like that. I can't believe I remember this. I'm going to look that up to see if I'm <laughs> right on that. But I think that fish actually had a name. But it's funny because, I, you know, I, I learned that from the card. But I can't remember an actual episode where you actually really do see a fish in the tank. So that's just bizarre. But I've got to look that up to see if that if I'm actually right on that. You you go ahead with more notes and oh, I'll look that up. This and see is if really I'm right. embarrassing, but I have a note here that I don't remember what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> is, is that Picard in the holodeck? You know what yes. I'm talking about? Yes, I do know what you're talking about. Oh, um, I do that, too. It was that, Well, they at the beginning of the episode, um Data is dressed up as Friar Tuck and he's reenacting scenes from Yes. That's right. And the yeah. king is dressed as a pauper and it's Right. That's right. Yeah. And I only remember this because of my first note on the episode, which was I friggin' hate Shakespeare. So <laughs> that's what helped me remember what your note was about. Because Ricard uh, Picard has that ridiculous line about Data, you're here to learn about the human condition, and there's no better there's no better way to do that than by studying Shakespeare. And I'm like, really, seriously? Uh, I know you're a boring old. I got two words Picard, for you, but... Picard. Three's company. <laughs> learn you. Uh, oh, Data. All right, here. Let's see. I think I found it. Okay, so listed on Memory Alpha. You put put in the word Livingston, you get several different things. The very first one on the list, Livingston, the lionfish in Captain Picard's ready room. I cannot believe I remember that. Livingston <laughs> must have gone belly up or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't recall an episode. Because I remember there's even episodes where like people would walk over to the aquarium and like peer into it and stuff. But I can't remember actually seeing a fish in the fish tank. There's all that crap in there. Yeah, 
It's obviously I, a fish tank. <laughs> Maybe it's hiding. Maybe it's shy. Space fish tank. <laughs> I guess you can't just, like, get a new... F if Livingston went belly up, you guess you can't just get a new fish, like, out of the replicator or something like that, so... No, I can't. It can't recreate. But I don't things. ever remember the very special episode of Star Trek where Liv Livingston bit it either. All right, or we're gonna like have to keep. A, we'll have to keep a watch for this. But <laughs> Livingston has his own page on, on Memory Alpha. This is ridiculous. Jesus. One of the pictures is Hugh looking into the fish tank and he's looking right at the fish so when we get to iborg we're gonna have to make a note to watch for that moment to see do we actually see the damn fish in there but the thing is he's a, he's a lionfish and lionfish are those weird kind of spinely fish that actually look like you know a like a backgroundish part of the landscape in a fish tank anyway so it would be hard on on crappy old VHS video to to see it with any definition anyway, you know, so But yeah, according to this there's several episodes where you can see him. I just don't recall having seen him I wish he would have been a space fish <laughs> space fish From some space planet But really I did not have a lot of notes for this show because once again it was one of those good ones where it was like I don't really have a lot to call out for this I, I thought it was really questionable that a Romulan you know like when the Romulan would start saying stuff like that he was doing it for the children right I would be very skeptical of that but then again they were very skeptical I wish there had been more Romulan episodes. I mean, there actually were quite a few TNG episodes involving the Romulans. And one of my absolute favorite Star Trek episodes of all time is an early episode of Voyager with a Romulan in it. But I just, I wish they had been I always... around a little bit more because this one right here, I think, demonstrates a really good reason why they're a really good and quintessential Star Trek bad guy. I think with the Romulans, they were exercising a lesson they learned with the Klingons, which was you might not want to use them too much because a, a sort of enemy that you don't see all the time is a lot more threatening and intimidating than like yeah. if you start having ex Romulans on all the time, you know, all you need are one or two pussified Romulans to really start softening up the image of it yep. you know i mean once wharf became a, a major character the just the general image of klingons has been been and klingons in general in that timeline have seemed to soften up a lot you know what yeah. i mean well that was a lesson that they seemed to forget in later iterations of star trek once uh, they started having the borg on like every friggin episode mm -hmm. of every iteration of star trek they they lost their teeth too because by the end of you know the original incarnation of, of Star Trek before they rebooted the the Borg had just become they'd gone from being like this ooh the Borg to like oh god the yeah, Borg come, again it, yep every story so, yeah which is a, a real shame I didn't have much on this one either uh, I had a couple other quick notes um, I made note of the fire in the Shakespeare scene at the very beginning of the episode. There's a point where either Picard or Data tells the computer to, to uh, stop the program. 
yet the fire stays there and continues to crackle. Now, I know that that's kind of a nitpick, but if this is all being created by the computer, then would the fire... Is the fire an actual real fire, and that's why it continues to crackle? I hope not. <laughs> or is it being... You know, is it entirely generated by the computer? In which case, when it when one of them tells the computer to freeze the program, the fire should freeze too, right? Kind of like stopping a movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. So it's probably it just, just being cheap on the special effects. That's all my I could thought. Think of. That's my thought as well. Is that they're thinking, ah, oh, nobody's going to call us on the flame. But if it's in the holodeck, again, unless the computer generated an actual real fire and then everything else around it is is holograms or whatever i don't know i just i, I tend it to shouldn't lean... be a hard special effect to do you just put the fire out and then composite a still frame of flame over it you know right so i don't the problem don't is, why... is that usually when they do the whole you know freeze program thing you can tell by the actors in the scene that they haven't usually actually freeze-framed anything because the actors continue to do that kind of wobble that they do yeah, when you're trying do, to hold they're the doing position. Yeah, they're doing like the end of that Police Squad TV show where everybody right. would go, ha, 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 and freeze. Right. And you'd want to see, like, yeah, something fall right. in the background. Yeah. But it, just, it was just one of those things I caught that kind of bugged me a little bit. Um, one of my biggest notes on this one is finally some action. Jesus. You know, it's yeah. about time. I mean, we get some really good, you know, the the Romulan ship flying in, shooting at the little ship and stuff like this. You know, just some things going on for a change, more than just talky-talk. And lastly, I thought you'd get a kick out of the fact that the planet, Nelvana 3, is actually named after that Canadian cartoon um, cartoon group. Yeah, Nelvana, which I thought was interesting. Something I read on the net somewhere. But yeah, that was about. That's all I really have on this. I, it always pains me when there's an episode I really, really like, and I just don't have that much to say about it. I mean, but there's only so many ways you can say, "Yeah, I like that." But I did. I like this episode a lot. This one's high on my list of episodes of TNG that I really think are great episodes. And it's sad. It makes me cry. I miss Jerrock. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Coming soon on Two True Freaks. Beware the beast man. A month-long celebration. For he is the devil's pawn. Of one of the greatest science fiction series. Alone among God's primates. Of all time. He kills for sport, or lust, or greed. Covering all the films. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. All the comic books. Shun him. The toys. Drive him back into his jungle lair. The entire phenomenon that was. For he is the harbinger of death. The Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes, a month-long event, coming soon, only at twotruefreaks.com. Shall we go on to um, Season 3, Episode 11? Do it! This is Season 3, Episode 11, The Hunted. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation, the crew of the Enterprise must stop a violent fugitive. Security personnel full alert. He's a man-made killer risking death for freedom. He committed no crime. 
He's been programmed to be the perfect soldier. Now, the only escape is to destroy everything in his path on Star Trek The Next Generation. Aired the week of January 8th, 1990. Directed by Cliff Bowl and written by <laughs> Robin Bernheim. He's the inventor of the bowl cut, right? I think so. And and Robin Bernheim probably had one of those Robin Hood haircuts. <laughs> All right. A-a-a-a-a-m. The Enterprise is relaying reports to back up Ingozia 3's application to join the Federation when it stumbles across an ugly skeleton in the planet's closet. The treatment of its war veterans. A tenaciously cunning escapee from a lunar prison colony turns out to be Roga Dinar, one of the top soldiers for the victorious planet in the Tarzian War. <laughs> now branded a murderer by the Angosians, he turns out to be a patriot who is turned into a killing machine by his government through biochemical and mind control. No! <laughs> no mind control! Warned to shy away from this internal affair, Picard learns from Prime Minister Nayrak Nayrak that the prison was constructed as a colony for those super soldiers who could not readapt to peacetime civilian life. Picard's hands are tied, and he's about to hand Dinar over to the Angosians when the soldier escapes from a transporter beam, beginning a chase that ends when he commandeers a police vessel. From there, Dinar attacks the prison, setting free his fellow veterans to march on Nayrak's government and demand treatment. Held at gunpoint, the dour Nayrak asks for help, but is shocked when Picard beams up, agreeing <laughs> that the debate is an internal matter. If Nayrak's rule survives, Picard says, Angosia will be a welcome addition to the UFP. If not, they can just F.O. <laughs> I have a much better name for this episode than The Hunted. I think it should be called Space Pricks Get No Help. I was I was call I was gonna call it Space Rambo. <laughs> Space Rambo, I like that. <laughs> First Blood Part Two. Uh, how, how about this? That'll do, Space Rambo. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> yes, James Cromwell in 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 the first of uh, actually many appearances that he had on Star Trek because. I tend to always think of him, of course, as uh, as the shitty version of Zephyrin Cockman in First Contact. But he was actually in several uh, Star Trek episodes across a couple of different series, as I recall. And uh, I think I'm pretty sure this is the first time he appears. Also, I think that this is the first appearance, or at least an, an early appearance. It may not be the very first one. I may have missed it popping up in an earlier episode but the matte painting right at the very beginning of this episode we are going to see that matte painting again <laughs> and, and again and again and again because they get a lot of friggin mileage out of that matte painting at the beginning of the episode but uh i like this one up to a point uh-huh. and mostly i like the beginning of it where it's just you know, it's the it's the big actioner the big chase scene and everything where they're trying to to 
you know hunt down Denar on the on the ship and everything. It, it's it's pretty exciting there for a while. I think Worf puts in a really poor showing in this episode because he repeatedly gets his ass kicked by Danar, which is just amusing on so many well, levels. Well, this guy's like, what's his name? Jason Bourne? Right. You know? he, he, he's a he's a mind-controlled super soldier. So, you know, he's re- really just a normal guy, but once you trigger him into action, he's kind of unstoppable. Right. And that's that, that was the main appealing thing for me with this episode i love james cromwell as an actor but he doesn't get a lot to do in this but that what turned out to be the main appeal was watching him outsmart everybody right two or three steps ahead of everybody like when data was like told him how he figured out how he caught him in the beginning i was like that's the dumbest move ever data yeah because now he's just you know he's learned and and is going to adapt from there and mm-hmm. he did. He just constantly turned the situation to his favor, no matter what. The guy, the guy wrestled his way out of a transporter beam, which is just stupid. <laughs> yes, and and caused havoc. But either way, you know, Picard after a while just pretty much was acknowledging the fact that, like, hey, we're not going to win with this guy. This guy's made to destroy us, and if we keep fighting him, we're going to destroy him. And if we stop fighting him. He'll stop trying to destroy us, so we're out of here, which was a very logical decision, and I like that that he just was sort of like, "All right, buddy, you're on your own," you know. Especially, I would have been a little pissed off if I was Picard that they pawned this guy off on on him, you know, the guy who could have possibly destroyed the Enterprise if they dealt with it incorrectly. I you. Like I said, I, I enjoy this one up to a point. It's really the ending of this one that bothers me on a lot of levels. Because for one thing, they do just essentially decide, you know what, we're, we're, we're just going to leave now. And they just beam up, knowing full well that it's very likely that Danar and his people are, are going to kill they everybody. They could just slaughter everyone, but it's, yeah. it's hard to say because... That's really not what they're made to do. They're not made to slaughter everybody. But if, if the, you know, if the government in charge decides that they're going to fight them, well, then yeah, they, they will slaughter. So they're in a weird, very yeah, they're in a very dangerous position. But Picard, I, hey, these guys aren't even in the Federation. These guys are applying, and right off the bat, they didn't actually lie but they were being manipulative with the federation before they were even in you know get basically getting the federation to do a little bit of dirty work for them without telling them what was up with it so that's that's a strike against them i mean i don't know i might rather deal with dinar than than with uh zephyr and cochran because um as as long as you were he's not going to become like a con type character where he's like let's take over the universe or at least not as he's present you know as his character is in this he's he's more of like very dangerous if provoked whereas the other guy's kind of weasley kind of um evil for creating these these guys and then putting basically putting them in prison 
and you know that prison couldn't have been just like they sort of portrayed it as like oh they can go there in like a retirement home or something that they couldn't leave but there's no way you could just keep these guys in some sort of pleasant retirement home you'd have to keep them shackled to the wall probably where they couldn't move their arms and legs you'd have to try you'd have to have them Hannibal Lecter style you know so so yeah I, I think Picard was thinking uh, you know whichever way the cards fall if they fall towards the current current govern, government then they're no worse than they are now and if it falls to the other guy maybe there'll be an improvement either way we're out of here I like that I like that he was just like hey screw you guys I'm going home <laughs> Well, you know, the other thing about that that bugs me, though, is that in later episodes, and I, I think it's the two-parter with Spock, mm-hmm. Kirk, uh, Picard kind of insults Kirk era, you know, the, the way they did things in Kirk era. As being sort and of cowboy-like or something? That's exactly what he says. He's, he calls it cowboy diplomacy. And he says something because in that episode we haven't we haven't gotten anywhere near that episode yet, but essentially Spock goes to Romulus with his own mission, his own agenda, and he doesn't consult anybody. He doesn't go to the UFP. He doesn't get permission. He just goes and he just does it Kirk style. And Picard comes there basically because they're fearing that that Spock has basically defected to the Romulan Empire. And Spock's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. I got this under control. I'm not defecting or anything. You know, you can go home now. And Picard kind of jumps Spock's shit and says something about, you know, with with respect, ambassador, you know, this this isn't your time anymore. We don't we don't you know, we don't take kindly to this cowboy diplomacy style in this day and age. Unless and we I'm do thinking, it ourselves. What the hell are you? Yeah, exactly. What what do you call this? Is this not cowboy diplomacy right here? Well, screw you, assholes. I'm going to leave you here for the lynch mob that you deserve, and we're going to go ahead and beam back up to the ship. And I'm like, what? Wait, hey, If huh? they can be space racists, they can be space hypocrites, too. Yeah, big time. And it's funny because these are the things that I didn't really catch watching this show, you know, when I discovered it back in the, in the 90s. But watching it again now... Man, there's a lot of episodes that I'm just... I, I'm left with a very uncomfortable vibe that... They're not as altruistic and, and wonderful and benevolent as they were kind of portrayed to be back when the series was new. Because you watch right. some of these episodes now and Picard and, and you know the the morals and everything that they're supposed to be upholding and all don't quite ring a hundred percent true all of the time. This is a perfect example of that. If they're you know supposed to be setting a, a better example and being the better people and everything, y- you don't leave you know, these these wussifists at the mercy of the killers at the end of the episode to face vigilante justice. Because that's what's going to happen. They're going to slaughter these people. What are so, the, what are, yeah, but what are the uh, alternatives? <laughs> I think Stay there all... and negotiate. That's what, it's, oh. that's what Picard does best is talk your ear off. That's and, true. You know, want to have a conference about everything. Yeah. If I were that, if I were in Picard's position, I would think every minute that I'm dealing with these people is another minute that my ship could get screwed up because of their antics. 
that's not what he's thinking at all. What so he's would, thinking is that the, the more time I spend down here is the less time I got for Shakespeare with Data back on the holodeck. <laughs> that's what he's thinking about. <laughs> it's true. Some Earl Grey tea. <laughs> Uh, it's just ridiculous. And of course, you know, we're never going to find out because it's not like we're going to get a later episode going back to this planet and go, oh, yep, sure enough, Danar's ruling the planet. And uh, hey, whatever happened to uh, the pig guy? Oh, well, yeah, we slaughtered all those guys. They're, they've been dead for years. Yeah, you know what happens to Zephyr and Cochran's at the end of the show. Yeah, <laughs> little babe in reverse. That little pig. That'll do. Next time you watch this one, and uh, and I'll throw this out for anybody in the in the listening audience that may not have watched this in preparation. When when you when you do watch this one, watch for this part where, all right, so Danar is leading them a merry chase all over the friggin' ship, right? And you can kind of see where Worf's getting a little bit fed up with this bullshit. Because every time he gets to where Danar was, Danar's like 15 decks away already. So I'm thinking by this point, the umpteenth time that they call down from the bridge to tell Worf that, hey, by the way, he's in section 25 on deck whatever, I'm thinking, why doesn't Worf just say, I tell you what, we can do sight-to-sight beaming now, right? Why don't Why don't you just beam me there instead of making me truck all over the goddamn ship, right? But he doesn't. He just keeps doing his thing. So there's a part where, <laughs> right toward the end of the chase, where somebody, I think it's Picard, tells Worf, hey, he's, go- he's going to the engineering section. So then they cut back to Worf and his security people the the best word I can de- I can use to describe it is sauntering, where they are, where Worf and his people are at this like slow saunter after they've been notified that that Danar is going to engineering. There's just this shot. They cut back to no, Worf and run, his people, man. and yeah, they're just casually taking their sweet ass time walking back to the turbo lift. I'm thinking. Come on, now the ship is in danger. A little, a little sense of expediency might be nice. Starfleet nope. Union regulations state that you can only run for 10 solid minutes before executing a shoulder roll and then a standard saunter. There is absolutely no pep in his step at that particular moment. It's hysterical. Absolutely hysterical. I like there was sort of a little Hannibal Lecter vibe going on with Troy and... Uh, and and Rambo there I got the distinct impression that she kind of thought he was hot in her Troy style she she sort of went into the abused girlfriend position of like I know he's killed all these people but you don't know him like I know him he's hurting inside (laughs) guys he's hurting inside but it wasn't just him though because I kind of felt that way in the scene where it was Troy, Data, and Picard, that they'd all come there to tell him that, hey, even though you're a crazy-ass killer, we all kind of like you. We're yeah. going to miss you once you're gone. You know, Even Picard seemed to seemed to take a shine to the guy. Yeah, he seemed like a decent enough guy when he wasn't killing everybody. <laughs> he wasn't, a, you know, if you just keep the switch, that switch from being flipped, flipped and you're fine, but... Now, who is that guy, that actor? Because I, I looked know. him up 
on Memory Alpha, and I didn't recognize anything that it listed for him, but I'd swear I've seen this guy in something like, I don't know, like Desperate Housewives or some damn He's thing. He's got that he looks classic. Vicious. It's hard to tell because all the actors that they seem in the, the, to get for these kinds of roles on Next Generation had that proto-90s um, mullet thing. Right. You know, sort of feathered hair mullet thing going on. So it was hard to tell who was who, you know, or, or Road Warrior style look. The only other thing I saw listed for him that I would have seen, but I definitely would not have remembered that it was him, was that supposedly he came back to Star Trek again and in the pilot episode of Voyager, when they wind up in the Delta Quadrant and half the crew of the of the Voyager gets killed, he was the original chief medical officer that winds up dead, and and so that's why they have the um, the emergency medical program, the holographic uh, doctor okay. for the whole series, is because the the actual doctor died. He played the actual doctor, but again, I wouldn't have remembered that. I mean. Because he's in the episode for like twenty minutes, and then he's dead Done. for the whole rest of the series. So you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have remembered. But I did think that that was interesting that it's that actor. His one line was, "I, <laughs> I'm a corpse, not a doctor, Jim." <laughs> but uh, let me think. What else did I have? No, that, you know, that's the end of my notes. I really don't have anything else on this one. I dig it, like I say, right up, right up until the ending. I just, I really don't care. the The ending on this one just, it's so not it even. A, like a, yeah, it just kind of happens. It's, it's not like it's a bad ending or anything. It just, it leaves kind of a sour taste in my mouth. Like, like really, Picard, and it, and it does that for two reasons. For one, I, I just, I'm not comfortable with Picard leaving somebody to their potential death joking about it once he gets back to the ship like well those assholes are gonna die you know which is essentially what he says well he says something to the effect of well if they survive the night then maybe we'll come back and help them or something to that effect and then again later on in the future giving shit to kirk and spock for effectively operating the exact same way and that's like no dude you're 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 total hypocrite in this particular instance so I don't know. I, I'm see. I don't have a problem with his decision. As a matter of fact, I think I would have made the same decision. But I don't think it was a particularly dramatic way to end right. the show, and didn't really didn't you know the 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 quote unquote lesson in the show was kind of like a Vietnam veterans one where it's like, hey, you can't train these people to be killing machines and then discard them. You have to, you know, you have to be nice to the to the veterans. Right. Yeah, very very Rambo like story. It's a it's you know, someone that was made for war and now the war is over and they're being ignored as a as a dirty little secret by the society. Which, you know, I mean but that message isn't enhanced or underlined or given any new nuance by the ending of it. The ending is just a way out. <laughs> right. And I think maybe a lot of times these characters were being created maybe by the writers or maybe by the show as, you know, potentially maybe this is someone we can bring back a la, unfortunately, Harry Mudd or something like that, you know. 
if this guy if this ep- if this episode you know rated really high or they got a lot of fan letters for this guy maybe they could have brought him back or or whatever so i think they would do a lot of stuff like this it's almost it's not as much a character study of him but he is sort of the main character in in this episode and if you view him as a protagonist it's more fun because he's always got the upper hand in it so yeah i don't think they were interested in having a really you know good ending for it which there's quite a few of these that just sort of end but that became a sort of endearing thing to me upon when when you know when i first started watching this series because i was like yeah sometimes life is like sometimes life doesn't have a you know um, where everything comes to a perfect solution. Sometimes it just has a part where someone goes, you know what, screw it, I give up. <laughs> you're an idiot, you're an idiot. I quit, <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go get drunk, and you guys can burn the whole place down if you want. And uh, I'm, I'm okay with that. But, you know... I like this episode. I th- I think it it's not as good as the last episode. It's you know it's both of which are just good solid next gen. We're really chugging along where there's not really we haven't been running into ones that are clunkers. Of course, we just had two in a row here without Wesley Crusher, so not saying <laughs> not saying anything. See, it's funny that I I feel the way I do about this ending because I I think one of the reasons I feel that way is because it's Picard. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. If it was someone else, like, say, the the perfect example would be um, Captain Calhoun from those New Frontier books. Somebody like him, I could totally see saying, you know what, screw you people. I'm leaving, and if you if you die, you die. I really don't give a shit one way or the other. I could see him totally doing that because that's his character. He's much more of a of a frontier style starship captain, but not Picard. Picard's usually the 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 peacemaker, the let's talk our way out of this. Yeah, or let's but he's come been leathering a... up a lot this season. He yeah. has, and I like that. And and it is again you know once again it's it's this is the road to the picard that i like a lot better so i don't know maybe i should give him more slack with this one but it just in this particular instance at this juncture with picard it seems a little out of character for him to act that way i i think anyway but again i i do dig the episode but i agree with you i don't think it's as good as the one that uh that preceded it now i'm trying to remember what the hell is the next episode after this is this the one with uh with the rebels there and the dude that thinks he's space george washington because i for some reason i i want to say that that's the next one hang on i i close my book on the i can tell you in a second it is called the high ground the high ground yeah this is the one yeah this is the one where uh crusher winds up being taken hostage by these uh these freedom fighter guys that it's kind of a you know it's one of those uh what do you call it analog episode where it's 
uh, trying to draw a comparison with uh, like terrorism and stuff. Okay. It's not a bad one. And then Deja Vu, or excuse me, Deja Q rather, is coming up fast. That's a really good one too. So we've got some good episodes coming along. Matter of Perspective is not a great one, as I recall. <laughs> Ooh, Yesterday's Enterprise. Have you ever seen that? I think I have. One of the best episodes of the whole series. So yeah, we got some good stuff coming along here. Some really good episodes. I'm excited. Man, we still have a hell of a long way to go before we get to Best of Both Worlds. I kept feeling like like that one was right around the corner, but no, we got a long ways to go yet before we get to that one. Maybe by the end of the year, maybe. <laughs> maybe. All right, well, gives us something to live for. Yeah, hey, before we go, <laughs> I keep forgetting on all our shows, but when... Go to um if you're if you're an iTunes subscriber, go to iTunes and rate our shows. Please. I keep forgetting to remind people of that, but it really helps out with our visibility. It's and, on the new tag at the end of the shows, at least I think it is, the the new tag that I did, but still, yes, it's nice to every once in a while to actually say it live, so to speak, to remind people that, no, we really mean it. You know, please, go to uh, iTunes and uh, and rate the show, because it does. It helps. We need new blood! Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E F-R-E-A-K-S You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. Dumbass. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. <laughs> We were finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft, which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this.